we might ask ourselves at times where is practice leading? What is the vision of Dharma teachings? What is the uh, deepest purpose or direction to which it invites us to travel? Or which it invites us to discover? I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on what we could say or call the fruition of practice. Practice, as we've discussed and explored together, is very much about the cultivation of wisdom, born out of an interest in caring for our own well-being and the well-being of others. We seek to cultivate wisdom Because wisdom is the gateway, is the basis for the discovery of freedom and the foundation and the basis for the expression of compassion. Freedom and compassion could be, I think, fairly understood to be the fruition of awakening. And I'd like to frame these reflections using a, a quotation from Kalu Rinpoche, a much loved and venerated teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, now dead. He once uh, said, You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Remarkable word. Should probably ring the bell. (laughs) 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 At the risk of gilding the lily, I'll continue. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We've spoken about this, we've reflected on this. Seeing how the appearance of self and other arises in life and how that creates a sense of separation, a sense of isolation and the profound depth of suffering that arises from that separation, from that isolation and from the conflict it generates. The appearance of things and the and not seeing deeply into them, we also find ourselves caught in the cycle of birth and death. When we are identified with, when we take ourselves to be in absolute and ultimate terms, something or those things which come and go, this body, this mind, when we identify with our experience, with changing things, we are bound to birth and death. We live in this illusion. 
and we live with this dominating our life and it is this or as though you might consider the circumstance of a wave on the ocean and for some time the wave is just moving on the ocean and then the wave becomes aware that at some point not so far away the waves in front of it are crashing into the shore and appear to be destroyed therein and so the wave becomes rather concerned about the progression of its movement because it's clearly going in only one direction and of course the wave crashes upon the shore and the very form of the wave is lost is gone never again to appear in that form this is the illusion we live in when we do not see beyond the appearance and yet we could ask ourselves what happens to the water in the way and we know the answer the very nature of the way is not its form or expression of the way but the water and the deeper fact of its existence is its participation in the vastness of the ocean which it does not leave and how could it what is destroyed in that it's simply in fact it's not even destroyed it's simply transformed is a movement of energy in the form of a wave and yet we are so deeply and strongly identified with being the wave being the things, the thoughts, the feelings the body, the mind that come and having come into existence is bound to go as we've talked about, as we've reflected on partly how this happens is that that's all that seems to be there there isn't anything else, is there? seems all that we can register and refer to are things that come and go in fact this is because the equipment that we're using i.e. this mind-body process to register experience sight, sound, smell, taste, touch and thoughts and, and Buddhist teaching the mind is regarded as a sixth sense so it's the mind in which thoughts arise in the same way as through which sight is seen in the eye or through the eye in consciousness so too thoughts are seen in the mind revealed in the mind of consciousness and the senses basically only register things that change now this is something we occasionally encounter we are aware that if there's a constant sound and not changing sound the classic one is the sound of the refrigerator we stop noticing it until such time as it switches off and then we realize ah, we were just a little bit tense by the court as a result of the sound but we didn't hear the sound or if a smell arises if it's actually constant after a little while even an unpleasant smell we stop noticing it we're sitting in the room doesn't smell bad at all even though there's however many 30, 40 of us someone else walks in they go hmm <laughs> they stay here a little while fine some scientists psychologists years ago were 
curious about this and they thought, well, that seems to happen some of the time, but it doesn't happen all the time. Is this really so? And where it never happens, it seems, is with visual perception. It seems actually if a sound, a sound, a taste, again, taste, you know, you start eating something, it's really lovely, keep chewing it, after a while it starts to, you know what a bar of chocolate is like if you eat the whole thing? By the end of it, the same taste, it just lost any interest. But it seems all those sounds, tastes, smells, sensations on the body can be... We just kind of stop noticing them if they're constant. They're really constant. We stop noticing them. But it never happens with the eyes. And these scientists um, were curious about this. And so observing the function of the eye, they realized the eye is moving very rapidly. Rapid eye movement. Moving. And as a result of that, the image that's being projected into the retina, the back of the eye, is constantly changing. And being reasonably smart, we um, compensate for this. The mind actually gets, or the consciousness receives an image that's blurred for a number of reasons, both two different images, one here, one here, and also the images are being shaken because the eyeball is moving. And you know what happens if you bump your head or you're disoriented, suddenly Im- images go blurry. They're not compensating for that. So the eye is moving like this. And so what these scientists did is they made this miniature slide projector and they mounted it on a contact lens. It was really small. And they sat it on someone's eyeball so that it moved with the eyeball. So the image coming in was moving with the eye and therefore staying constant on the retina. Within, I don't know how relatively short time it was, the image was there and then it just disappeared. Blank. Stopped registering. The person's eye was open and what they were seeing was nothing. And the conclusion from this, which is significant to us, is that the sensory equipment, in this case the eye, cannot register something which is not changing. By its nature, it cannot register something which is not changing. And so what we tend to encounter when we're looking out into the world through our senses (coughs) is that which changes. That which changes, which comes and goes. And yet, this is not all that is being revealed. This is not all that life reveals to us. Kali Rinpoche's words. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When we don't identify with changing experience, when we start to see how painful that process is, and as a purely pragmatic response to the suffering involved in binding ourselves to experience, we actually start to release it. We become less invested in it, less fixated on it. We're not, if we're not giving experience the power to make us happy or to make us unhappy, the power to define us, as we wish to be, or define us as we do not wish to be, then it has less of an entrancing quality to it. It's not quite so strongly grabbing us because because it actually 
we see that it's not really offering that which it used to. And it can't offer that which we've imagined it might, which is satisfaction or an understanding of who we truly are. We can't get that from experience that changes. And when we stop focusing so much on the experience and yet stay really present and not withdrawing, not turning away, we can come into contact with in a way that is not through our senses, not through the familiar mode of apprehending. We can actually begin to resonate, receive, contact, connect, sense. The ground of, of being, the basis of existence, the, the nature of life, through and in which all experience unfolds, through which life moves, within which it's all happening, without which it couldn't. And how do we come into contact with this? Well, first of all, and obviously it's not something we can just do or look for or take hold of. But we could just reflectively consider, perhaps, the way we tend to operate when we're engaging, when we're meeting, experience. What we tend to notice, perhaps, much of the time is that whatever stands out to us, we focus on. And uh, what stands out to us is that which tends to be moving or changing or showing something changing in some way. For instance, uh, if on, a, on a clear night we look up in the sky and what we tend to see is the stars and their flickering light and the brilliance of the light and the subtle colorations that flicker through them. And we see the stars and then we see the constellations, the structures that they sometimes seem to create, the images that are there. And that tends to be what stands out to us. And it's really easy, unless we're actually training ourselves to look for it, to not so fully and deeply see the blackness of the sky. We kind of just take it for granted. We don't totally recognize or connect with the fact that it's there and that actually it is the much vaster amount of what is out there. And that without it, those little spots of light wouldn't really show up to us. They're revealed by the inky blackness behind them. And yet, that's not really what we cue onto or what we click into with our attention. And this is kind of how we tend to perceive, how we tend to experience things. It's a little bit like if we go to the movie. We all know exactly what's going on. It's a movie. We walk in, we sit down with the screen. And then the lights go dim. Can't see a thing. And then suddenly images appear in front of us. We see these pictures. We see this going on. We know exactly what's happening, but we forget 
What's happening is colours are being projected onto a blank white background. If we could see the background, it would be very different. But we can't. And because we can't, we actually start to believe that these colours are people. And other colours are environments and situations. And we get really interested in these colours. And some of these colours are nice colours. And some of these colours are bad colours. And we get really worried because some of those bad colours are trying to hurt some of these nice colours. And we really do. And fortunately, usually, at least most mainstream movies, the good colours win out and eventually meet some very cute looking other good colours and they go off together. And yet, we get so drawn into this, forgetting that it's some colours projected on the screen. And if we could see the screen all the time, and if there was a sign that kept saying, hey, these are colours on the screen, we'd tell them to shut up, spoiling the story. But actually, the fact, what is most real in that situation? The flickering of the colour? Well, the steadiness of the screen that reflects them back to our eye, without which we could not see those colours, and yet precisely because of those colours, we cannot see the screen. That which is changing seems to obscure that which is not changed. Because we fixate upon it, identify with it, believe in the story that it creates. And yet, the very fact that it is revealed to us immediately we could infer if we were to stop and reflect that Something's being revealed. What is that that reveals? What is that that reveals this? That appears? What is it that reveals the appearance? The appearance is not happening independently or somehow in isolation. And yet this we cannot approach from the point of view of the mind, the thinking mind, from the point of view of the senses. Not something that can be seen or heard or smelled or tasted or touched or grasped or conceived. And yet, there is that capacity of our being which registers, which resonates, which actually can and does come to know that ground of being, that basis on which life manifests. And remarkably, in the moments when the grasping and the holding and the positioning of ourselves drops away, what tends to characterize the experience, if we could call it an experience, because perhaps it's not really an experience, but what characterizes what happened, what is revealed, is both a sense of remarkable freshness, something new, something that isn't old, and yet that at the same time is familiar, that is recognizable that we actually sense, that we resonate with, not for the first time, and yet it's completely new. 
this sense of a freshness and a newness that is at the same time as it's completely fresh also familiar it's something that <coughs> we maybe have encountered at times in just seeing a drop of rain on a leaf or just feeling a, a breath or a moment of experience just without positioning ourselves in relationship to it or just in a moment when nothing's happening and just we're there and we're just so there that we're not there anymore and yet the presence is unmistakable undeniable the brightness and the fullness of that moment is tangible but with what we couldn't say it is being tangible oh, I'm not quite sure what the, what the word is for that what, what, is, what is it that if it were a sensation, senses it. But it's not a sensation. And yet, no. We know. The familiar and yet fresh. The immediate and yet timeless touch of life. this very knowing itself has not some basis upon which it rests the knowing is what knows the immediacy of awareness that is remarkable, is mysterious is ungraspable, inexplicable and yet clearly evident it seems paradoxical to talk about it in such ways and yet experientially it's not it's just it's what it is it's that to say something is tangibly present and yet we can't put our finger on it this remarkable conscious existence of life that hearing or speaking or whatever it's doing right now sleeping or thinking about something else this has or we could say is something profoundly real that is not what it appears and yet <coughs> not something else either And the practice of our path, the journey of our life, is the journey of awakening in which we come slowly, steadily, and yet innocently to return to our origin, to our basis, to our ground. T.S. Eliot in the Four Cortes wrote 
cease from exploration. And the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. A journey to where we began, a coming home, we could say. This is the journey of practice. And even more remarkable than the discovery that there, the ending of the journey is to return to where we started. That the whole movement of life is simply to come back to its own beginning and yet to know that source and centre of being consciousness even more remarkable than to understand the principle of that return is to understand also to realise that in fact we have not actually ever left Uh, something of a counterpoint to T.S. Eliot. Rumi expresses it in an inimitable way. I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opened. I've been knocking from the inside. I've been knocking from the inside. What we're looking for is not something we have left, but simply failed to see because we thought we were looking for something else. A few years ago I was um, washing the dishes at home and the phone rang so I uh, got up to answer it and as I was talking on the phone and the phone on the crook of my shoulder chatting to a friend and I, I sometimes did then um, would play with my wedding ring on my finger and as I was talking on the phone I just reached for it and I felt that soft smooth shiny spot on my finger where my wedding ring should have been it wasn't there and I thought, oh no, it's fallen off. And I was talking to my friend, I called Catherine, I said, Catherine, don't tip the dishwater down the sink. And uh, finished the phone call, went to look for it. It wasn't in the dishwater. And I was holding my finger with the other hand, feeling that place, that soft, shiny, slightly sweaty spot where the ring usually lives. See, I've lost, I've lost my wedding ring. When did I last that? When was it last there? It wasn't in the sink, it wasn't in the dishwater. Looking around the house, Catherine was kind of, I said, Catherine, will you help me look for my ring? And she looked at me for a couple of moments, then she said, you're looking on the wrong hand. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There I was. It's gone, it's gone, you know. And I'll tell you what, you're looking at this thing and I cannot see my ring. It's not there. 
had not lost it for a moment. And by this, I'm busy. I can't get rid of here. Obvious as day went to unmask. So long as we actually believe that we have lost, become separated from, or apart from that which our deepest that which is our deepest nature, then we continue to look elsewhere. But when we when we start to intuit, when we start to realise, to know, to sense, to trust that that which is our deepest nature, how could we leave that? How could a wave leave the ocean? Where would it go? And even if it could, would it not inevitably find its way back there? What water could leave the ocean but to find its way back there? Doesn't all water return to the ocean? The process of seeking, of grasping after, of pursuing is dissolved in the moment that we realise that that very process of seeking, in that process, that which is seeking, is that which is thought. What is looked for is that in fact which is looking. And in this, the momentum dissolved. And yet, life goes on. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you realise this, you will see that you are nothing. You are no thing. When we see, when we begin to sense the deeper dimension of being, really only then does the potency ultimately go out of the tendency to identify with. Through seeing and understanding the suffering in that, we can release it again and again. We can learn not to support it. And yet we notice it does arise. And that's of course the appropriate and natural development of our practice. And yet to release that tendency to identify with changing forms, with the changing form of body, mind and life, we only really can do this through the realising of the unchanging nature. So when our heart is in contact, is in communion with that deeper truth, then we we don't have any urge to take hold of anything. Because what could that anything offer us? The whole movement of craving and grasping and the suffering it engenders is born of blindness, of not seeing. Not just seeing in the way I not seeing the character of existence, of existent things being changing, unsatisfactory and not self. That's one level of thing, but equally of not seeing the deeper nature underlying all of us. 
a seeking for satisfaction in things is born of the a felt loss of conscious contact with the true basis of satisfaction which is the truth of our life and all life and this is the basis of freedom freedom is to know deeply and unshakably that no thing defines us that there is nothing of there is no particular there is no specific circumstance, thought, feeling, manifestation, condition or action that comes up from within us or exists around us that precedes us in our history or comes after us in our future. There is no condition, thing, circumstance or experience which can truly define us. When we are not defined, we are not confined. When we do not identify, we cannot be bound. We cannot be bound. We are not tied to that which is subject to birth and death. Body and mind, waves on the water. And in that not identifying, what shines forth, what shows itself, what is revealed, is the ocean. Is that out of which all waves are formed, into which all waves return. Which all waves are not apart from, and yet which is not defined by those waves. All that born and die. To be nothing is to beyond, be beyond the reach of birth and death, to be no thing. And yet, in being no thing, when you realise this, you will see that you are no thing, you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. To not identify with a particular is actually to be left in the very midst of everything, to be not separate, apart from, or amongst, to be part of all things, in the sharing with them of the same underlying fundamental truth. That is so much profounder, greater and more significant than the particularities that distinguish us, one person from another, one body from another, one species from another, even sentient life from apparent inanimate object. Such even great differences are less than and less significant than ultimately the underlying truth that encompasses all of encompasses it all. We are not separate. Only in the illusion of identification with a particular do we experience that perception. And in the dissolution of that identification, that perception, the vastness of life opens up. To be part of the vastness of life, this is the discovery. This is the revelation. And the vastness of life is one that encompasses everything, that in its very vastness is beyond our rather petty, 
views about how things should be, our preferences, demands, and prejudices. Like we don't look up at the night sky and think, well, you know, be better off if that constellation was over there. <laughs> I'd really rather that the, you know, the galaxies were shining purple instead of blue. No, when something's big, our mind doesn't incline towards trying to improve it or think that it should be different than it is. Only when we become separate or separate something else do we go into that routine. It's like the vastness of life when we're part of it. Our mind is humbled by it. Appropriately so. Humbled to be part, to be a speck of dust in this cosmos, a momentary flicker of existence and a vastness of time and space that is incomprehensible. And yet, as much as humbled by that, equally just uplifted, exalted even by to be part of this, this vastness, this amazing, miraculous, inexplicable and immediate universe, world, life. We are part of that. Connected, held, not isolated, not separate. The freedom of being nothing is counterbalanced by the responsibility of being everything. That we actually feel a response to being part of life is natural. To recognize that the very essence of holiness, and in English the language represents it, the word has the same root, wholeness and holiness are the same. That which is spiritual is that which is undivided, is whole. And healing has the same root. The end of illness. And the Buddha spoke sometimes of his teaching as the ultimate medicine. The ending of ill or illness is the ending of separateness. And this is that which is holy. To see, to have to be touched by that vision of life in which we understand this directly. I'd like to read from Black Elk. The book Black Elk Speaks. Black Elk was a holy man of the Ogallar Sioux. who lived in the uh, 19th century. And he reported once on this uh, experience or vision or realization. He said, And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw, for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made one circle wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the centre grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. 
holiness of life, the wholeness of life. When we are not separated from it, this is what stands out. And this is not just the healing of our heart, but the healing and the healing of separation and the pain of that. But it's also the healing of our hearts and life's natural inclination to wish to respond to itself. Compassion arises in its deepest and profoundest expression through the dissolution of separation and division, through the seeing the untruth of separation. And in that then, caring for life, for others, for oneself. The wish to care for that becomes limited to that which we identify with, ourself, our family, our friends, those that we like, or even those parts of ourselves that we like, not the ones we don't like, that we don't care for, those parts of the world that we don't connect with, care for. That intrinsic, natural caring that is human, we could say, but equally it's just of life, all of life, that caring, it actually finds its way out. It is released. When there is when there is no boundary, we build not a boundary around ourselves, and we believe not the appearance of boundary, then the love that is there is boundless. It is unbounded. And it flows, it moves. And there is a remarkable capacity in human beings, and we see and hear stories of it many times. The remarkable capacity of people to go beyond what we might have imagined what was possible for a human being to offer or to give to another. Stories of bravery and courage and immense love. One story I heard, true story from years ago, I'm incredibly touching, of a young boy, five years old, who was sister, six or seven, was very ill with a rare blood disease. She needed a bone marrow transplant to, to survive, to have any chance of surviving. She was incredibly sick. And they searched high and low for a suitable blood marrow, bone marrow donor. They couldn't find one. And they realised that in the, in the end they have to take some bone marrow and some blood from, or not that they would have to, but the only person they found was her younger brother. They said, we need to take some, well, they, they, he was five years old, they said, gosh, he could save his sister, but we need to ask him, because we can't just do this to him. He's a human being, we can't just take it from him. So they went to the little boy, they said, your sister's dying. We need to take some bone marrow and some blood from you. Otherwise she'll die. She'll die without your blood. Will you let us take that? He said, I need to think about it. I don't know if he said, I need to think about it, but he indicated he needed a bit of time. Mm -hmm. And then he came back to them and said, yes, okay. And so they took him straight to the hospital. He was uh, the uh, operator to take the uh, 
the bone marrow and took a quantity of his blood had the appropriate blood factors as well that were needed and uh, gave this to his sister operated his sister gave her the blood transfusion when the little boy came round after parents were there they thanked him for what he'd done so kind of you they said he smiled he heard that his sister was going to be alright and then he went pale and he said so now how long before I die perhaps it's clear enough but he thought that in giving his own blood he was going to sacrifice his life for his sister and he did it I wonder how how could some little five-year-old boy have that capacity for this? something remarkable inspiring about the immense goodness that can come from our hearts in so many ways and of course it doesn't have to be such immense sacrifices as this might suggest not to set up some model or expectation of what should be but to actually allow to invite to support one's life to be an expression of love for life an expression of caring to allow the response of our heart to find its way into the world because our heart responds in so many ways we do care, we do feel, we do sense and yet so often we find ourselves not quite feeling free to respond feeling we need to restrain need to hold back and sometimes it's appropriate too sometimes we need to take care of ourselves our own limitations prevent us from giving everything to another and in those moments we need to have compassion for ourselves for our own contraction or fear or pain that means we need to take care of ourselves in that moment and it's appropriate, it's not wrong it's not less than taking care of another but in those moments when we're also able to offer to another to do so when we can give of ourselves to not hold back from that Mother Teresa once said we are not asked to do great things in this life only to do small things with great love and this really is a a beautiful invitation even at times it seems the immensity of suffering in our own heart may seem more than we can cure or fix by any act or action or series of them and yet the very willingness to respond so far as we're able is enough and we have to learn to trust that there's a story that illustrates this rather well of a woman who was walking along a beach and hundreds if not thousands of starfish had been thrown up at high tide on the beach the sun, the, the tide was going out, the sun was shining down and this woman was walking along the beach picking up the starfish one starfish at a time, throwing it into the ocean and someone else came along and said to her what are you doing that for? can't you see there's thousands of starfish on the beach what difference does your action make? 
picked up another one, threw it in, said, makes a difference to that one. <laughs> and it does, always. A kind word, a kind deed, even a kind thought. May you be well, may you be safe. If that's all we can offer, don't hold back from offering it because we wish there was more to offer. That's what opens the pathway, that's what opens the heart and allows life to respond to itself. We do not have to do more than we are able to. And yet at the same time, to not do less than what is possible. And to see that in serving any, we are ultimately serving all. Including taking care of ourselves. In doing so, we support our ability to take care of others. In taking care of others, we ultimately serve our own well-being. There's a an instance recorded from the time of the Buddha when one of his monks was very ill and the Buddha and his attendant came upon him lying in a puddle of his own uh, vomit and uh, urine and the other monks had just ignored him. And the Buddha immediately went to help this, this monk and cleaned him and washed him and wrapped him in some clean robes and he called the monk and said, Why have you left this man? Do you know do you not realize that we must take care of each other? If you will not take care of others, who will take care of you? And he said, if you would serve me, if you would take care of me, the Buddha, their venerable teacher, their master, the light of their lives, they might say, if you would take care of me, then you should take care of this man, you should take care of each other. There's an equal and beautiful passage in the Bible where Jesus speaks in very similar language. That which you do to the least of my brothers, that which you do unto is that which you've done unto me. To understand we're not separate. What we do to another for good or for harm, we ultimately do to ourselves and to all of life. And compassion, compassion is the, the flowering of our deepening relationship to life. The flowering and the movement and the expression of the love that life has for itself when it knows itself truly and fully. That heals, not so much in that it can end, the suffering of all things, but that it ends the sense of wrongness that is in it. And that it reveals the suchness of life, that this is how it is. And all its beauty and its tragedy, this is life. Freedom reveals no suffering. No one has suffered. No one to suffer. Compassion reveals beings in need of care and kindness. Being nothing, you are everything. That is all. It's that. Simple. Not to be made too complicated. Something about the 
understanding of life that isn't making one special, that isn't about being important or different than anyone else. Just that is all. The suchness of things. The way it is. And as we move in our journey deeper towards the fullness, we touch moments where we sense the presence and understand it. The illusion. The reality. The freedom. The compassion. And the simplicity of just what is. The suchness of life. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you see this, you will realize you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. May our practice of awakening together bear the fruit of freedom and compassion for the welfare of all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.